Good morning. Good morning. Happy Sabbath. When I came in this morning and I noticed that the podium wasn't up here, I thought, uh-oh, you're going to put an Italian who talks with his hands and can't stand in place even with a podium, and you're going to take my safety area away. What a recipe for disaster, huh? Um, my wife has retired and I'm still working, and um, we've had to work out some things because when I come home, um, I want to kind of, how do you say, decompress, and I, and I need some alone time. Um, my wife, however, is, if you know her, she's a people person, and, and when she sees me come home, um, there's just such joy, and, and she just wants to tell me about everything. If she asked me how my day is, how my day was, I would say, went Okay. And she'll be like, and? It was okay. If I ask my wife that same question, what kind of an answer do you think I'm going to get? You know. And, and, but I will tell you that I, I have come to enjoy it and, and look forward to it. And here's why. My wife is not shy about sharing Jesus. She will share Jesus with anyone. And, and it's amazing some of the stories that she shares with me when I get home. Some of them are humorous, some of them you scratch your head, um, and some of them makes you turn sad. Uh, we do have an acquaintance, a friend of ours, that um, she was sharing Jesus with one time. And the individual basically shared a story of him growing up. He had fallen in love with fishing. And one day he got up and he was going to go fishing. And he told his mom, Mom, I'm heading off. I'm going out fishing. And the mom said, no, you can't. And he goes, well, sure I can. And she goes, no, you cannot go fishing. It's the Lord's Day. But he said, Mom, I want to go fishing, and I'm going to go fishing. So the mom tells the young man, if you go fishing... God is going to strike you dead. This, by the way, was not a Seventh-day Adventist. This was somebody who kept Sunday. Today we're going to tackle a topic, a hot topic, one that if I had any hair on my head would make my hair stand up straight. And that is legalism. As I thought about um, naming the sermon, I was trying to come up with something catchy, and, and I'm not the most creative person. I came up with a few, and I thought, oh, yeah, this sounds good. I know. And then I found, come, come across one, and I said, I know what it is. I'll call it the Curse of the Pharisees. And, and, and I thought, yeah, that's a catchy title. People will remember that. Um, but then when it all came time to submit the sermon information, I wound up going with my gut instinct. Just get straight to the point. Legalism, part one. By what definition? We need to separate some fact from fiction, truth from error regarding legalism. As Adventists, we are considered by many, what? A cult. 
And given the way some people act that I've met in the church, I can, if you, that was your experience, I can understand why you might think that way. We are also considered by the vast majority of Christians to be legalists because we preach that in response to God's grace, we should actually keep God's law. The problem with Christianity is is that when we talk about legalism, there's not one but two definitions. If you're going to use a word to describe someone, I think it would be appropriate that you actually understand what the word means, would it not? If I say to you the word antichrist, what do most people think of? Someone who opposes Christ. Because after all, the prefix anti means what? To be against. It's a French word that was used in the first translation and continued down. The problem with that, that word, while it's true, somebody who is antichrist would be against Christ, the problem with that is, is that when you look at the Greek, there is no word antichrist. It's a compound word, a prefix added to the word Christ. And when you look in Strong's Concordance and when you look at any Hebrew and Greek dictionary, um, when you look at that word antichrist, the word, the prefix anti is typos. And it doesn't mean against. It actually means in the type of or pattern of. So when people think of Antichrist, they automatically assume that this is someone who is against Christ, but yet what Paul and John are sitting back and saying, it's like, no, 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 no. If you want to identify the man of lawlessness, go take a look at Judas, the son of perdition. Someone who was in the church appeared to be following Jesus, but is opposing everything that he did privately and secretly. I thought it was interesting, too, when, when I was doing it, because it's very easy to assume that we know words. And I know when I came to, to studying the Bible, one of the things that I struggled with was, um, you know, somebody's a son of this and somebody's a son of that. And then I'm looking, it's like, well, wait a minute. How can you sit back and say you're a son of Abraham, and yet you're 40 generations now later? And so I had to learn that in the Hebrew culture, and in many cultures, quite frankly, that if you are, if you are anywhere along the line, it doesn't matter how many generations out. It's not, we talk about it as grandfather and great-grandfather and great-great-grandfather, and I don't know how many greats you go before you stop using great. Um, it, you're just simply a descendant. But when I looked up in the Hebrew, purely on a whim, the name, the word in the Hebrew for son actually means a builder of a family. And I thought about that, wow. Because that had a little bit deeper meaning, because immediately I'm thinking of the two titles that Jesus had for himself, son of God, son of man, building the family of God, building the family of men. And so what does legalism mean? There's two definitions for legalism. One is is scholarly, call it academic. The other is what Christian culture has. Now, how many people of you believe that the the Jewish religious leaders were legalistic? We've all heard the Jewish religious leaders referred to as legalistic, right? Those who oppose Jesus. We've all heard that. 
And how many of you would believe that the Jewish leadership was keeping the letter of the law, but not the spirit of the law? Is that not the common definition that we hear? And I will tell you, as we're going to show today from scriptures, that if you believe that legalism is defined as following the letter and not the spirit, and believe the religious leaders who opposed Jesus were following the letter of the law but not the spirit of the law, I will tell you unequivocally, you're wrong. Dead wrong. Because as we go through scriptures and we go through the stories, we're going to find out that the Jews kept neither the law or the spirit of the law. They kept neither the letter nor the spirit. Now, the academic definition of legalism is self-righteousness. And by that definition, were the religious leaders who opposed Jesus legalistic? Oh, you bet they were. No one debates about the attitude or the actions. They were obsessed with rules. They had made an idol out of the temple. And I would submit they made an idol out of the Sabbath. No one debates their actions and their attitudes. They were proud. They were unteachable. Even when Jesus showed them their own flaws, they refused to come to repentance. Refused. They knew they were talking about him, and they still refused. They were, as Jesus said, self-righteous. Jesus restores a withered hand. And how do they respond? Do your work on some other Sabbath. On another day, don't do it on the Sabbath. A man is healed who had been infirm for 38 years. He's now able to walk. And when the Pharisees and when the religious leaders see him walking, carrying his mat, what do they do? Do they praise God? Do they give him glory for restoring rest, restoration? Or do they sit back and say, uh, why are you doing what's unlawful on the Sabbath? I have a question. Where in the Bible does it say it's unlawful to carry your mat? But understand as we go through this idea of looking at legalism, we need to understand what the core issue is. It was an issue in Paul's day. It was an issue in the early church. It's an issue that needed to be restored. It was a fundamental to the Reformation. It's an issue we fight today. What is the role of God's grace? What is its purpose? And how does that fit into the new covenant? The Jews had come to a place where they believed where obedience somehow earned them salvation. The medieval church had come to a place where they believed that you could earn grace, that it wasn't a gift, that it's something you had to earn. When Paul said, by grace through faith, not of works, least a man boasts, it is a gift from God, but to go and do the works of God and that he has prepared for you, the good works that he has prepared for you, Paul was putting the order of grace, faith, and works. And they all need to work together. You can't have one and not have the other and still have salvation. It's the order. It's not the words and the process. It's the order that they're in, and they have to be. If I were to sit back and say to you that, that what does it take to live, you would sit back and say, well, I need to have air. Right? I've got to have air to breathe. I, I need to have water. 
and I, and I need to have some kind of food. Which one can you do away with and still live? And it's the same thing with grace, faith, and works. Which one do you do away with and still have true life? As we go through this idea, and this is part one, here are the questions I believe we need to answer from the Bible and find the answers. First of all, we need to understand what is legalism, what is the definition, and is it appropriately defined what the Jews were? The second and third I believe we need to do is, is that we need to come to an understanding how did they become so obsessed with Sabbath observance? Why did they generate so many rules? Did you ever stop and ask, that, ask yourself that question? We see it, but do you ever ask yourself how they got there? Another thing we need to look at and, and identify in this is we need to discover what were the true character attributes of the Pharisees. What were they really like? And then, ultimately, the lesson we need to learn is how not to be like them. Turn with me, if you will, to Deuteronomy chapter 4, verse 2. Now, as you're turning in your Bible, the book of Deuteronomy in Christianity means the repeating of the law. If you speak to a Messianic Jew or you look at Jewish resources, um, it is a repeating of the covenant promises of God. We know in Deuteronomy chapter 5, we have Moses repeating the Ten Commandments, the Ten Words. Um, but in Deuteronomy 4.2, I want us to listen very carefully to God's instruction through Moses. I'm reading from the New King James. You shall not, what? Add to the word which, who commands? I command you, nor should you take away from it that you may keep the commandments of God, the Lord your God, which I command. So what are God's instructions regarding his own law? Don't add to it. Don't take away from it. You know, with the Internet these days, we, we have access to vast amounts of information. And um, I hope you do realize that not all of it is true. Uh, I heard someone laugh, but I've actually met people that think that, well, if it was in the paper, it had to be true. If it's on the Internet, it has to be true. Um, there's a website that I, I enjoy going to uh, because it gives me insight into the Jewish mindset. You can get to it in many different ways. It's called JewFAQ is the one that's most commonly. And I wanted to read to you something about um, what they say about Sabbath observance. Now, it's a, it's a very long, lengthy thing. I'm not going to read all of it to you. But I thought this comment in the beginning was interesting. It says, most Americans see the word work, and I think of it in the English sense of the word, physical labor, effort, or employment. Under this definition, turning on a light would be permitted because it does not require effort. It goes on to say, the problem lies not in the Jewish law, but in the definition Americans are using. The Torah does not prohibit, quote-unquote, work, as in the 20th century, but actually they prohibit malakha, and I'm probably mispronouncing it. They go on to describe and define 
what this definition, this word that is translated into English as, as work, um, they describe it this way, that work is anything that's creative that exercises control or dominion over your environment. Think about that. My wife recently had a conversation with someone and sharing the Sabbath, and the individual said, well, if you're going to keep the Sabbath, you can't drive your car. Now, you laugh. But according to Sabbath laws, you cannot do that. You cannot turn on a light switch because it creates a spark. And in a car, when you turn the ignition on, it creates a spark. Now, in here, they, they, they enumerate, and actually there's more than 600 different Sabbath laws, but I'm just going to read a few of them. They enumerate different kinds, and, and here's my favorites. Like, to begin with, you can't sow, you can't plow, you can't reap, you can't bind sheaves. This is all things dealing with harvest, and I actually don't have a problem with that. But then they go on to sit back and say things like, well, you can't take two pieces of thread and weave them together, nor can you take two pieces of thread and separate them. You can't write more than two letters. And similarly, you cannot erase more than two letters. And then, of course, they end with, in their 30, list of 39 categories, uh, taking an object from private domain to public or transporting an object in public domain. Is that not what they accused the man who couldn't walk, carrying his mat. Why are you doing what's unlawful? Now, I will jump ahead. We won't cover it today. But in essence, here's how the Jewish people became so enamored with the Sabbath and started to create these, all these rules on Sabbath obedience. Do you remember the story of the Babylonian captivity? Jeremiah chapter 33 gives a powerful promise to Israel. It says, if you will but hallow the Sabbath, if you will keep it holy, don't bring your harvest into the city to sell in the marketplace. Jerusalem will stand forever. Did Jerusalem stand forever? So I guess they didn't feel. This was a conditional promise that God gave. After the Babylonian captivity, you read in Nehemiah 13 that uh, after they came back, and they came back, and Nehemiah, who I, I love Nehemiah, I'm looking so forward to meeting him. Uh, he's a layman, but man, was he passionate for God. Was he not? Here, here's a man who's a cupbearer, and this cupbearer does what all the religious leaders and other leaders in, in Judaism failed to do. He claimed God's promise of going home again and caught it and saw to the rebuilding of, of Jerusalem. Powerful man. But if you know the story and you read Nehemiah, Nehemiah goes, he oversees the construction, but he can't be away from the king too long, and so he heads back to the king, and he goes back and he serves the king for a while, and he says, hey, king, can I go and can I see how things are going on in my homeland with my, home, with my people? King gives him, and you read in Nehemiah 13, he gets there, and he just found everything just running absolutely smooth, Right? Like clockwork. Priests were doing what they were supposed to be doing. People were doing what they were supposed to be doing, right? No, we read the exact opposite was happening. In fact, Nehemiah gets so angry with the priests, it talks about how he rips the beards out. 
because they had gone out, not only had they, they were not doing the services as, as according to the scriptures, not only were they not doing that, they were turning around and they were doing something that God had forewarned them from the very beginning after he delivered them out of Israel, out of Egypt, excuse me, after he delivered them out of Egypt. Don't intermarry with the uncircumcised. Because if you do, you will follow their gods and walk away from me. And we see throughout the history of Israel, every time that happened, that's exactly what happened. The moment they got interacted in marriage, they wound up following the other gods. And Nehemiah comes back, and he's like, you've intermarried. Have you not learned about these 70 years in captivity? And he puts things into right. And he was passionate about keeping the Sabbath holy. So passionate, he ordered that the gates were to be closed. And that anyone, the merchants, even those who are not of Jewish, I, I would appear who are not Jewish, would, who are, would come and wait at the gates till sundown when the gates would open so they could bring their harvest into the marketplace <coughs> to sell. Nehemiah was so passionate, he chased them away. One of the prophets said that if you look forward to the end of the Sabbath, you've already profaned it. Apparently, Israel started to realize the commandment, the appeal to keep the Sabbath holy, that God was actually serious about it. And over the decades and over the centuries, they came to the place where we see them in the Gospels, where they had become so obsessed with the Sabbath observance that when somebody who was healed, Jesus frees someone from the bounds of Satan, the very creator who became part of one of us to redeem us, the very one that scriptures talk about, the very one that they preached about, the very one that they spoke was coming, is now standing in front of them. And they actually accuse him of doing the work of Satan. How low can you go? Attributing the work of God to the work of Satan. I hope none of you are ever foolish enough to refer to another person in our church as a child of Satan or doing the work of Satan. And by the way, if you know me, I don't make rhetorical statements. It has happened. And I fear for the people who made those statements. I fear for your very salvation. Turn with me very quickly to Matthew 6. We're going to, before we get into it, we're going to look at two stories with Jesus. We're going to look, first of all, at, the, at our scripture reading. We're going to look at the story of Jesus and the disciples going through the field. <coughs> and then we're going to look at the well-known story of the woman caught in adultery. We're going to put to the test of Deuteronomy, where it says, do not add to, do not take away from the law. We're going to compare what the Jewish leadership accused the disciples, accused Jesus of doing, and seeing if they were keeping the letter of the law or if they actually had added to or taken away. Does that sound fair? 
Reading in there. Now, this is what I want us to capture the embrace of how Jesus described the Pharisees. In Matthew 6, 2, this is what he says. Therefore, when you do charitable deed, do not what? Do not sound a trumpet before you, as the hypocrites, the who? The hypocrites do in the synagogue and in the streets, that they may have glory from who? From men. Assuredly, I say to you, they already have their reward. Later on, when you drop down into verse 16, it says, Moreover, when you fast, again, do not be like the hypocrites, with a sad countenance where they disfigure their face. Make it appear to men as they're fasting. It's like, oh, man, how are you doing today? I'm doing good. I'm fasting. No, 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 no. Anoint your head with oil. Have a smile. Joy. So that your heavenly Father sees what you're doing. And he will give you your reward. Later in Matthew, he describes in this way, 23 verse 4. They bind heavy burdens. They are hard to bear. And then they turn around and they lay them on the shoulders. But they themselves will not lift a single finger to help them. My, my favorite, however, comes from Matthew five, nineteen and 20. And I would invite you to turn to that one. Matthew five nineteen and 20. Part of the Sermon on the Mount. And Jesus begins Whoever therefore breaks one of the least of these commands and teaches men so shall be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does and teaches them, he shall be called great in the kingdom of heaven. And then the punchline For I say to you, that unless your righteousness exceeds that of the righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will what? By no means enter the kingdom of heaven. Turn with me to now, Matthew 12. Picking grain on the Sabbath. Starting with verse 1. At the time, Jesus went through the grain fields on the Sabbath, and his disciples were hungry. And he began to plunk the heads of grain and eat. And when the Pharisees saw it, they said to who? To him, to Jesus, Look, your disciples are doing what is not lawful to do on the Sabbath. Keep your finger there. Go back to Deuteronomy, chapter 23, and let's read verses 24 and 25. Because this is the law that they are referring to, or appear to be referring to, shall I say. If you're there, Deuteronomy 23, verses 24 and 25. When you come into your neighbor's vineyard, you may do what? You may eat your fill of grapes at your pleasure, but you shall not put any in a container. When you come into your neighbor's grain field, you may pluck the heads with your hand, but you should not use a sickle on your neighbor's standing grain. So what 
is being discussed. If you're going through a field or somebody's garden or whatever, and you're hungry and there is food that's there, what is God saying that you're allowed to do? You're allowed to eat from it, are you not? What can't you do? Well, I can't turn around and be greedy and turn around and put some in my pocket. I can't turn around and bring some bucket or something or some backpack or, or something and fill it up and, and say, well, they're just going to let it go to waste anyhow. And, and, and so, no, 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 no. God says that you can go through and you can eat your fill, but you can't take any with you out. Question. Let me read to you what the religious leaders accused Jesus and the disciples of doing. Your disciples are doing what is not lawful on the Sabbath. In what I just read to you from the Word of God, does it say anything that you cannot do this on the Sabbath? Do not add to, do not take away, lest you corrupt yourselves. What had the Jewish leadership done? They added to the law of God. So were they keeping the letter of the law? No. There's so much that we could could spend the rest of the day on, on the rest of this whole discourse. But to stay on point, turn with me to John 8. You probably know this story. You can probably repeat it word for word. If you've been in the church any length of time, you've probably heard sermons on this story at least a dozen times or more. The woman caught in adultery. We're going to focus on one key aspect. There's so much to this story. John 8, beginning in verse 1. But Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. Now early in the morning he came again into the temple. And all the people came to him and he sat down and he taught them. I'm going to stop here just for a second. I'm going to go a little divergent. What was Jesus doing? He's going to the temple, and what was the purpose of going? To teach. God is seeking us before we seek him. And if Jesus is going there to teach, then this assumes what? That we have a few things to learn. And the scribes and the Pharisees brought to him a woman caught in adultery. And when they had sat her in the midst, they said to him, Teacher, this woman was caught in adultery in the very act. And listen to what they say next. Now Moses, in the law, commands us that such should be stoned. What do you say? Now, if you have a physical Bible with you, I would highly recommend, if you're familiar with Bible markings, take out a pen. And if your Bible doesn't already have this reference to that passage, write it in so that you have it for future reference. Because I'm going to read to you from Leviticus 20.10, the very law that they claim they're following. Write that in your Bible. If you have a way on your electronic one, put a, put a cross-reference in there. 
Reading from Leviticus 20.10, the man who commits adultery with another man's wife, he who commits adultery with his neighbor's wife, the adulterer and the adulteress shall be put to death. We know where is the man. So were they keeping the letter of the law? No. They were doing exactly what Jesus has accused them of. Setting aside the law of God for the sake of their traditions, for the sake of their power, for the sake of glorifying themselves before men rather than humbling themselves before God. Legalism. Did they really follow the letter of the law? The reason why I bring this up is because as Adventists, we are challenged all the time about being legalistic. And if you are the person who thinks that somehow your obedience makes you better than someone else, then you fit the definition and you are a legalist. If you somehow think you can earn God's grace by something you do other than just simply accepting his gift, then you are, by definition, a legalist. But if we are responding to God's love and we show it through obedience, this is not legalism. This is the heart of the gospel. This is the essence of the gospel. This was the whole purpose of Jesus' coming. John says it so eloquently. He said, Jesus came to destroy the work of Satan. And what was the work of Satan? Lying about God's character. And that character was reflected as an instruction. The ten words, ten commandments, spoken first by God, then written, placed inside the ark. They were referred to both as the ark of the testimony and the ark of the covenant. Which is it? Well, the reality is, it's both. You get to choose which one. If you want to follow the law and think you can keep the law on your own power, if you think you have the heart and mind of God that you can see in everything that you will never sin, then it's for you, it's the Ark of the Testimony. And yes, testimony, if you go and look at the Hebrew, it's a legal term. And if you go and look at how the scriptures say in Deuteronomy, he says, I testify against you. Because if you can't keep, what did Paul say in when he fought the whole issue of circumcision coming in back into the church? And he says, if you're going to keep the law, if you're going to keep circumcision, then you need to keep how many? All of the law. I shared earlier this morning in Sabbath school. Ten commandments, right? Those of you, if you heard, if the number 613, does that sound a bell to anyone? If it doesn't, it's the number of laws that God gave in the Torah. If I were to ask you a question, who gave more instruction, God in the Torah or Jesus in the, in the Gospels, who would you say gave more instruction? 
Now, the fact that I'm even asking the question should already tell you the answer. I didn't come up with the list. I actually found it. A scholar recently did it and went through and counted something in the neighborhood of 850 different instructions Jesus gave on how we should conduct ourselves. Last I looked, 850 is a little bit bigger than 613. Someone, after having read that, decided to expound upon that and then included all of the epistles from Paul and Peter and James, and that number ballooned up into the neighborhood of something like a neighborhood of 1,250 on how we are to conduct one ourselves as a representative. So being under grace, is being under grace, is it less restrictive, or is there, or should I say less expected, or is more expected? If you look at a woman with lust in your heart, you are already guilty. That's not diminishing the law. That's doing exactly what Isaiah said. I'm magnifying the law. If you hate your brother, you are guilty of murder. That is not diminishing the law. That is taking the letter of the law, and that is magnifying it. Why does he take hating your brother so serious? Because it's exactly what Jesus, or excuse me, what Satan did in heaven, sowing the seed of discord. And God lost a third of his family because of it. Did they follow the letter of the law? No. And if you didn't follow the letter, you certainly can't follow the Spirit. So when you find yourself in a situation where you have the opportunity to witness to people outside of our community of faith, and the issue of the ten words coming up, and people say, oh, we're under grace, share with them. Find out what their understanding is, and then share with them what I've shared with you. Were they really following the law of God, or were they guilty of exactly what Jesus accused them of? I end with this. You can find it in Matthew. I believe in Luke as well, too, but I'm going to read from Mark. For Moses said, honor your father and your mother. He who curses father or mother, let him be put to death. Did you know the cursing your mom and dad? Kids, where are you? Did you know cursing your mom and dad? Was it a death sentence? We should teach our children that. But you say, if a man says to his father or mother, whatever profit you may receive from him is Corban, that is a gift from God, then you no longer let him do anything for his father and mother. Thus, verse 713, and I think the number 13 just so fitting, thus you make the word of God through no effect, through tradition. The northern kingdom of Israel sinned. God gave them up through divorce and gave them over, never to be again a nation. He preserved for himself Judah and Benjamin. But as the prophet Jeremiah said, you didn't learn from your sister Israel. Not only did you see what they did, you did worse. Not only has Christianity looked back and seen what happened to Israel and what happened to Judah, as a whole, Christianity has done the exact same thing. 
legalism, by what definition? Make sure you use the right one so that you have the right message. Obedience is the fruit of salvation, my response to a loving God. An unfaithful spouse who is forgiven does not go out and continue in unfaithfulness, but shows love and appreciation.